Now, as Sam's already mentioned, the concept comes from the words of this song. And one of the verses starts, Jesus, my shepherd, saviour, friend, O prophet, priest and king. Now, what we're doing, we're doing it in the opposite order. We're doing the last three first. So this month, we're going to be looking at prophet, priest and king. Because in a sense, they come if you like, from an Old Testament approach of uh, how people serve God. And then next month we'll be looking at shepherd, friend and saviour, doing it in that order so that we finish with saviour at our all-age service in the run-up to Christmas. So, but as I, I think I mentioned last week, when I'd been a few days previously into Backchild School to... Uh, talk with uh, the year six class on the topic of can you believe in God and the Big Bang I made the point at the beginning that I wasn't going to talk about God in the abstract because I don't believe in an abstract God I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and coming behind this series is the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ and therefore Although there's all kinds of things which will follow on from that, we have to keep coming back and reminding ourselves of those basics. We are followers of Jesus. So, my passage for talking on Jesus' prophet comes from Matthew in chapter 12 and from verse 38. The word should be going up on the screen in a moment. So, Matthew chapter 12... You want to follow in your own Bible from verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, as you probably saw, I brought, brought two great big books up uh, with me to uh, the lectern. It's not to show off that I do an awful lot of reading before each sermon, because I actually tend to use contents and indexes. And these sorts of big books, you look up the bit you want, not read the whole lot in one go. And I'm not sure I've actually read either of these books in all. Now, Wayne Gruden's Systematic Theology, some of you might have come across, some of you will have it on your bookshelves. If you look up in this book, under Jesus the Prophet, you will find two pages out of over 1,200 on it. The other book by N.T. Wright, otherwise known as Tom Wright, except when he publishes as N.T. Wright, it's one of his academic books, Jesus and the Victory of God. So this is about Jesus, what can we know about Jesus historically? 600 page, 100 plus pages, 
325 of them on Jesus as prophet. Though actually the whole book is on that topic, really. So, why the big difference? Partly, well, not partly, mainly, Gruden's book is looking at what can the Bible tell us which is relevant for us now. Two pages. Wright is looking at, as I said, the historical Jesus. Therefore, much more important. But it seems a big difference in emphasis. So to deal with it fully, I think there's two questions I need to ask, and then an application. So the first question is, Jesus a prophet? With a sort of question in intonation. And then what kind of prophet? And then what relevance does that have for us here and now? Now, when I was researching this, I came across some surprises, things I didn't expect. So, if you use a, con a concordance, you can use an online one like the Blue Letter Bible or a, you know, a book type. If you look under Prophet, you find there's something like 14, 15 references in the New Testament to Jesus as Prophet, which is not a massive number. Some of those are basically saying the same thing, but in different Gospels. But when you look at it further, none of those references come later than about AD 35. Possibly AD 33, whichever year Jesus was crucified and rose again. Because you find all the references to Jesus as a prophet come in the Gospels. Apart from one reference in the Acts of the Apostles when Peter is talking to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. Beyond that, there is no reference to Jesus as a prophet in the New Testament. So there's nothing in any of the letters, nothing in the later part of Acts. Even if we go to Hebrews chapter 1, and again, some of, some of the passages I'll give the words will come up, uh, others uh, I'm just, I'll just throw the reference in as I pass by and you can look up later if you wish but if we look at Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 1 long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world so he starts by saying God has spoken in the past by the prophets. <coughs> a classic situation where the author could say, and Jesus is the best prophet of them all. But he doesn't. Given that in Hebrews, he refers to Jesus in terms of priest, high priest, he refers to him as a king, but no reference to him as a prophet. So, Jesus clearly is much more than a prophet. But he's never less than a prophet. And in fact, this, the fact that Jesus gets mentioned as a prophet in the Gospels, but not in the letters, actually reinforces the fact that we can take the Gospels as historically accurate. 
If you were inventing the Gospels, why do you go putting things in which you're not going to refer to or use later? Because in a sense, all the references to Jesus as a prophet in the Gospels are redundant. Not that anything in the Bible is redundant, as I'll show you in a moment. But in the sense that it's not a primary factor which the early church used when it's talking about Jesus. But it's there in the Gospels. So it must be because that's what actually happened. You know, in history, you don't go putting in stuff which is a, doesn't happen, particularly if it's not something you want to draw out and make use of. So, apart from anything else, it helps show us that the Gospels we've got are accurate. Now, looking in the N.T. Wright's book, when I dipped in and out of it, it's clear when you look at documents outside the New Testament that the people in Palestine, in Israel, at that time when Jesus was around, were looking for a prophet to come. They probably didn't have much idea what that kind of prophet that would be. And in fact, if you look in the other things, there's all kinds of different prophets pop up uh, in Israel at this time. And even when, if you look up the passages I don't mention from the Gospels, where Jesus referred to as a prophet, it's often people, other people, see Jesus doing something and say, this is a prophet here. But they're not really too clear what it means. My favourite one of these is the high comedy you get in Luke chapter 7. I don't know if you ever think of the Bible's comedy, but some bits really are extremely funny. So, Luke chapter 7 from verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his, wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd have known what, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, to, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. And then Jesus goes on to uh, tell a parable and then tells this uh, Simon all about this woman. So here you've got Simon thinking, thinking to himself, not probably saying it, not saying it out aloud. If he was a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is. Then Jesus speaks out a parable showing Simon that he knows what Simon's thinking and also he knows what sort of woman this is anyway. So, you know, it's often, often in, in sermons people bring out other bits from this passage and quite rightly too. But to my mind, just, it just strikes me as absolute, well, you know, just absolute, what funny, is that the right word? Hilarious? You know, but... Jesus is actually twisting this man's idea of a prophet and saying, yeah, well, you think if I was a prophet, I'd do this. Well, actually, I can do far more than that. So, 
So, if Jesus was a prophet, what kind of prophet was he? Well, of course, the answer to that is all of them and better. What else can you say about Jesus? But, again, filching most of these bits... No, I'll rephrase that. Filching all of these bits from N.T. Wright's book. uh, There's several kinds of prophet you can see clearly in the way Jesus uh, behaves in the Gospels. I'm sure there are many more, but if we could turn to 1 Kings, because this is one of the sort of the less well-known prophets, 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 17, because not all the prophets uh, uh, actually have prophetic books in the Bible. This prophet was Micaiah ben Imlek, and he got called in by King Jehoshaphat when he was meeting up with King Ahab to decide whether to go to war or not. And this is what he says in verse 17. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And then, if we go to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36... It says of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Both on mountains, both sheep without shepherds. Also, you can see in Jesus uh, reflections of Ezekiel, talking of the temple without God's glory in it. Of Jeremiah being seen as a traitor to nationalistic ambition. Amos, talking about the people of God, were going to be judged. Elijah and Elisha raised a widow's son. And of course, the one I started with, Jonah, who is the only prophet who Jesus directly relates himself to. I don't know what your image is of Jonah. I think too often we can write Jonah off as a children's story because with big fish, otherwise known as whales in some books, uh, you get, you know, it's sort of very visual and so on. But to me, I think one of the most significant bits of Jonah comes in chapter 1, in verse 3. Talking, right, so in the first two verses, God tells Jonah to go off to Nineveh and tell them uh, that their evil has come up to God's notice. In verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I don't know what image you have of Jonah running away. A lot of people have an image of Jonah running away because he feared the Ninevites. Which he really ought to because they had a pretty awful reputation. You go to the British Museum and look at the Ninevite uh, stone records of what they did to people when they conquered them. And uh, it probably... You know, if you're showing it in a documentary, you'd have to go past the nine o'clock watershed. They were not a pleasant people. 
So you could think, ah, oh, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he feared the Ninevites. But it doesn't say that. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? He wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. He didn't want to hear what God was saying. He didn't want to go to the Ninevites. And why didn't he want to go to the Ninevites? Because he knew there was a risk that the Ninevites would repent and then God wouldn't destroy them. And he wanted them destroyed and they deserved destroying. No two ways about it. But God, who cared for this, you know, you think of what's happening in Syria, Iraq, that sort of area now. You know, think of the worst groups which are worth operating there, and there you might be getting close to about the level of the Ninevites. I'm not sure they get quite as far as the Ninevites did. And yet God cared for these people who any righteous person would want destroyed. Were enemies of Israel. He cared for them. To send a prophet. So, okay, when Jesus is comparing himself to Jonah, one of the main things he's obviously talking about in that is like Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, he was going to be in the earth, referring to the time between his death and his resurrection. But also, in comparing himself to Jonah, he's also saying that he is there for those who are outside Israel. He hasn't just come for the people of Israel. He's come for those who are outside. He's a prophet. He's come for those who everybody would think deserved destruction. And did deserve destruction. So when Jesus comes as a prophet, he does what all the prophets did. He disturbed things. He upset the status quo. Now when you look in the Old Testament, most of the prophets were not that popular. There were popular prophets, but not the ones we went the book recorded in the uh, Bible. Because a popular prophet would say what people wanted. In fact, when we go back to the first one, Micaiah, Jehoshaphat uh, had to push Ahab quite hard for Ahab actually to produce this prophet. Because he got all the court prophets were saying, yeah, go up, you'll be able to destroy, uh, forget whichever uh, uh, enemy they're about to attack, the Syrians, I think, at the time. You know, and Jehoshaphat was, mm, have you got any more prophets around? You know, I want somebody who actually hears from God, rather than just somebody who says what's expected. And they have sort of ums and ahs and says, well, there is this guy, but he's a bit of an annoying sort of thing, and I'd much rather he didn't turn up. But that's what prophets do. 
This is what Jesus did. Because he doesn't fit in with the nice categories we would want to fit him into. Coming on to application. I think there's two bits we can draw out, particularly as from Jesus associating himself with the prophet Jonah. First one is, if you want a sign, he said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. What sort of sign do you think the Pharisees would have wanted to have seen when they came to Jesus? Lame person made well? Bit of water turned into wine? 5,000 loaves of bread? They're all signs Jesus did. But actually what he's saying is if you want the true sign of who I am, it is the fact that I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. If you want a sign that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he's God, the resurrection is his sign. Again, when I was preparing for the talk at Baptist, that really just came to me so strongly. The only real evidence for Christianity is Jesus' resurrection. All the other evidence just supports that. So I think that's important as we're coming to a time when we're looking at you know, one thing particularly to see people come to the Lord and get saved. There's all kinds of things we can do to help explain the Christian faith, to make it seem reasonable. But ultimately, the sign we can't get away from is the thing which makes the Christian faith unreasonable. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And everybody knows that dead people don't come back to life. I know there's one or two exceptions, but no. That is the general rule. So, ultimately, if we're talking about the Christian faith, we have to come to the resurrection. And if somebody wants to reject the Christian faith, they have to decide why the resurrection is not, did not happen. Because, as the bits I used at school, things like the fact we have the Gospels, we have books, all the other things, they only follow and make sense because Jesus rose from the dead. Why are we meeting on a Sunday if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? If Christianity were just a offshoot of a, um, a Jewish offshoot, we'd be meeting on a Saturday. We wouldn't be meeting on a Sunday. What happened to change it? Okay, no, not proof of anything, but it all follows from the resurrection. And I think the other thing from Jonah is a reminder that God's word is for everyone 
There's nobody who's outside hearing God's word. I know it's something we keep coming back to time and time again at the moment, but it's something we need to keep reminding ourselves because it's uncomfortable. We're like Jonah. You know, Jonah can double up here. Some bits of it, we're like Jonah. Some bits, Jesus is like Jonah. We're like Jonah in the bit that we're quite comfortable telling God's good news to people we're comfortable with. But there's those people over there in whatever mean way you think of those people and over there who are not very pleasant. We'd probably much rather God produced a great big hole and they dropped down into it. But God calls us not to have any distinction. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It will be uncomfortable. Jonah moaned to God when he started, when the Ninevites repented. He said, there you see, I told you that's what would happen, he said. And God said, yes, I did know that was what would happen. But, whatever God is calling us to, let's be people who reflect the sign which Jesus said is the sign he's going to give. His death, his resurrection, and the fact it's for everyone. I'm going to bring it to a close there. But, it, as, as I said at the beginning, there's not much in the Bible, in the scriptures, about Jesus as prophet. There's going to be far more on the other things. But it doesn't mean he isn't a prophet. He is a prophet and much more.